0: Let's pray together. Father God, indeed, it is our continued heart cry to seek you, to know you, to discover you in the glorious ways in which you reveal yourself. Uh, It is our heart cry to know even in these days of coronavirus, these days of quarantine, these days of uncertainty, It is our heart cry to know what it is that you are doing to draw us into relationship with you. So may you do that. May you do that for your glory. May you do that for our good. And as we pray those things personally, we do pray over those who continue to labor on the front lines nurses, EMTs, um, even the fast food workers, the folks that are dealing with the public every day, your protection your care, your nurture over them. And we would pray for those, God, who are uh, given the coronavirus, that uh, you'd bring healing and wholeness to their lives, and those who, even in these days, grieve over ones lost as a result of this virus. So, God, indeed, would you have your mercy upon us. Help us to understand, and yet help us to live well in these days. I thank you for your word, and I pray, indeed, today that, um, as we turn to it, that you will speak mightily to us, that indeed we would see and receive today uh, encouragement and good food as we pour our seats up to the banqueting table of your goodness, of your mercy, of your holiness, of your word. Pray that it would be so. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uzziah was... A king of Judah for 52 years. Imagine that, right? So uh, that's a long time to be king. <laughs> Uzziah was king of Judah for 52 years. His, his reign as king started when he was just 16 years old. And in 2 Chronicles 26, it tells the story of King Uzziah uh, Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, 2 Chronicles 26 tells us, and, and his years of reign were great and prosperous years for Judah. There were victories over enemies, victories over the Philistines, uh, victory over the Arabians, and a victory over the Metonites. Uh, every surrounding country, in fact, it names Ammonites by name, but every surrounding country... Uh, during Uzziah's reign had a great respect for Judah because of Uzziah's leadership. He built up Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah in that time. He, he built it up as a, as a creative place for inventions. He, he built a strong military in the midst of it and he built up a fortified city. The people of Judah during King Uzziah's reign felt safe. They felt secure, and they lived with certainty that God was good. But Second <laughs> Chronicles 26 also tells us of a day that went terribly wrong for Uzziah. Uh, verse 16 says this, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. The short story is that Isaiah as king took on a role that was not his to have. He became a bit arrogant in his reign and rule. Arrogant in the reality of how good things were going. And so he took on a role that was not his. He, he, he became the priest. Uh, And so he stepped into the temple and he went to offer incense on the altar of incense. And and though there were many priests that came around and said, King Isaiah, you need to stay in your lane. This is our job, not your job. He still did it. And he actually became angry at their confrontation. As he became angry at their confrontation, leprosy broke out on his forehead and soon then to his body. His anger was quickly punished by God with this leprosy and He was removed from his kingship, and he died in seclusion. It was a tragic end to an amazing reign that would have, listen, that would have left the nation of Judah with a number of uncertainties, a number of questions. Can you imagine? Um, why did God do this, right? Isaiah was such a great guy. Why in the world would God? He's done so many good things. He put him on the balance. He's done way more good than bad. He, all he did is he went into the temple and tried to offer incense. What, what was so bad about that? Why did God do this? You ever hear that question? Maybe the question was, can God do this? I mean, does, does he really have the right to take our king away? Is this fair to Isaiah? Is this fair to Judah? Maybe the questions uh, went to, what's going to happen now? Does God even care about us? I mean, if he has done this to King Uzziah, uh, what, what, what what's he going to do with us? Uh, will God destroy us all? Because, listen, uh, my sin is a whole lot worse than King Uzziah's sin. And, and, and dang, God took him. A lot of uncertainty. A lot of questions. And maybe even this question. Who really is God? It was a question that I actually posed to you two weeks ago. I asked you the question, I asked you to think about, who is God? Because I suggested that in times of uncertainty, times like uh, Judah was having in the death of Isaiah, times like the coronavirus, times like quarantining, times like economic questions and uncertainties, Right? we might be likely to ask questions like these. We might be likely to ask the question of who is God. Because in the midst of uncertainty, we might have that question of God, but I I want us to see that in having that question about God, we might just see more of the certainty of who God is. So here's the premise of the Sundays coming through the end of May. Uh, The hope is that we we see more of the certainty of God as we peer into the uncertainty caused by our circumstances. And that might be the coronavirus for you, it might be cancer, it might be other things in your life. It's a series entitled, uh, The One Thing Certain in Uncertainty. Two weeks ago we turned to Romans chapter 11, verse 33 as a base text for this series, kind of the the theme. Verse. It's a response of praise from Paul at the end of one of the most uh, complete, profound, and full expressions of who God and the gospel is. And if you remember, I, I asked you to memorize Romans 11 33. Uh, and, and I wonder how you're doing with that. I, I'll, I'll give you a reminder this week that, that we should be uh, memorizing because here's this grand truth at the end of 11 chapters of the fullness of who God is. The Apostle Paul, one of the most brilliant men to walk the earth, says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable, how untraceable are his ways. The Apostle Paul, after such a great expanse of knowledge, still comes to a place and goes, Man, I, I, don't, I don't even begin to know the fullness of who God is, but I praise Him for that. We discovered two weeks ago that God is incomprehensible and eternal. As we talk about this big church word, the attributes of God, those are the two attributes that we looked at, that when we see that God uh, is, is incomprehensible and, and eternal, uh, we, we see Him in, in, in that fullness. We, we realize that things that bring us uncertainty are very, very small in the scope of who God is. And so he brings certainty to our uncertainty. We, we continue in that series this morning. We turn to the uncertain times of King Isaiah's demise to see that one of the greatest cures, get this, one of the greatest cures for times of uncertainty is a picture of the holiness of God. So if you have your Bibles nearby, which I hope you do, I'd love for you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, Uh, verses 1 through 7 Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 you see Isaiah begins his days as a young prophet in the day of King Uzziah and in the midst of King Uzziah's tragic death and the uncertainty of God's people God appears to the young prophet and here is the account in the year that King Uzziah died, there it is, I And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke." Let's stop there just for a second to see the picture of holiness that Isaiah sees in his day of uncertainty. You see, God graciously gives Isaiah a picture of certainty in uncertainty and it is a precious gift, a gift that that he hands not only to Isaiah but to the people of Isaiah's day. It would be a, 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 a picture, a vision that he would share with the people and it is a picture and a vision that we share even today, thousands of years later in the reality of our time this morning. Isaiah prophesied in a crazy time. I mentioned that he was just a young prophet in the days of Isaiah. He would have seen, though, in his long term as a prophet, that the northern kingdom of Israel would fall, would actually be defeated by the Assyrians. Crazy time. He would see the reign of good kings like Isaiah, like Hezekiah, but between them be subject to the evil rule of King Ahaz. But his message would have always come back. I believe, to this vision of holiness. Get this, in any uncertainty that he would have leaned on the certainty of this vision, the certainty of the holiness of God. I cannot possibly capture the vision in words, even as Isaiah could not capture it in words. We are even uncertain if if this is a vision of Isaiah or if God literally pulled back the veil to give Isaiah a, a peek at the reality of the throne room of God. We don't know, but we do know this, what Isaiah sees will forever stay with him. God is seated on his throne, the text tells us. Well, why are kings often seen seated? I don't know, kind of like my king up ready for a fight, right? But Why, Why, especially in, in, in God, why, why are kings often seen seated? Well, it's because being seated is a place of rule. It's a, a place of saying... I have authority. It's a place of saying it is finished. I've got this, right? That is the reality. And and here we see that God is seated on a throne that is high and lifted up. A throne that is higher than any other throne. He's seen as, listen, the, the thing that we say often of him, that he is the king of all the kings. He is seated in a throne that is high and lifted up. And this would be critical For the people who lived in the uncertainty of kingship in Isaiah's day. I mean, what would happen if Assyria took over Israel, right? Uh, Who's really king? Well, God is. What would happen if Babylon takes over Judah? Which it did. Well, who's really king? Well, God is. What happens when earthly kings screw up, lead poorly like Uzziah did? God says to Isaiah, I will always, I will always be on my throne. And his authority, his authority on his throne is seen in a robe that fills the temple. In the days of the kings, the importance of a king, the longevity of a king is shown in his clothing. If he is dressed simply, he is probably a new king who has not proven himself. If he is dressed uh, though in royalty, he is a well-established king. And his train or his robe, the the thing that follows out of him, would, would be a sure indicator of both his longevity and his significance. A short train was evident of a more shorter reign and a more insignificant reign. But a long train was evident of a long and distinguished reign. What did Isaiah see? This king seated on his throne high and lifted up. That his, what? That his train, that his robe, what? Filled the temple. What did he see? Well, I'll tell you what he didn't see. He didn't see the beginning of his train, nor did he see the end of his train. Why? Because this king, this king of great royalty, with this robe that fills the temple, you cannot even begin to see the beginning nor the end of his reign. He is eternal. In fact, his train busts out of the room that he is in, and it fills the temple and then there are these cool seraphim. The seraphim are only mentioned here in all of the Bible. They're known to be warrior angels, often described as flames. But, but, but even they could not look on the being of God. Listen as they cover their faces. God is so holy, so other, right, that they can't begin to even peer at Him. And then listen to their song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You know this, you've heard this in the little bit that we played during the offering. Repetition is a way to emphasize the importance of something and this is the only time that an attribute of God is repeated three times. You may have heard R.C. Sproul in that clip this morning say you've never heard anyone describe God as mercy 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 or truth 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 but here we hear the thrice Three times over, exclamation point of the reality of God who is holy, holy, holy. What does that mean that he's holy? We we know it's important. We know it's significant. And we know there's a a highlight to it. There's exclamation points after it. What does it mean? Well, often in our day, holy is seen as something pure. Even we, we think of holy, we think of being morally pure. But holiness is is not something that you do or don't do. Holiness is something that you are. And holiness is something that God perfectly is. It literally means to be set apart. It means to be completely other. So what Isaiah sees and hears as the angels sing is something that is completely different than anything he has ever known. And in it, listen, In it, there is certainty (laughs) for his uncertainty. As Isaiah appears upon this image, this vision, uh, maybe through the veil that God opens to his throne room, all the uncertainties of the nation of Judah, all the uncertainties of King Uzziah's uh, demise, the weird way in which his reign, and all the uncertainties of life fade away to the certainty of one who sits on the throne. In fact, not even the material world seems to be able to withstand the greatness of the scene. You hear the call of God's voice. You see the glory of His presence as the smoke fills the house. And indeed, the foundations shake mindful of Jesus telling the Pharisees that if my people don't sing, what that the rocks will cry out. I think we have that similarly in this place. Listen, if even the angels would not sing holy, 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 the foundations of the temple shaking are proclaiming his glory. Who is God? He is holy. In fact, he is holy, holy, holy. He is a beautiful picture of certainty in uncertainty. But listen, in this account, because while it would bring confidence, certainty and uncertainty, it would also bring a picture of contrast to Isaiah as well. R.C. Sproul says this, when Isaiah recognized who God was, he for the first time recognized who Isaiah was. (laughs) point two here is not a picture of holiness point two is the picture of sin because the holiness of God reveals the sinfulness of man look at verse five Uh, we have this picture of holiness but this is the response in verse five of Isaiah six it says and I Isaiah said woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice that Isaiah, in seeing certainty in the midst of his uncertainty, did not erupt in high fives or chest bumps. He didn't even have the word hallelujah on the tip of his tongue. That As he saw certainty, as he saw the King on his throne, he uttered a word of judgment. Upon himself. That word is woe. If you look through the Old Testament prophets, uh, there's one of two words that they speak on God's people. Blessing means there is goodness coming, woe means there are curses coming, there is judgment coming. We hear Jesus even as he speaks to the Pharisees in the New Testament in the midst of uh, their false uh, religion, right? Woe are you who are whitewashed tombs. Woe. It's a heavy word of God's judgment. And Isaiah, in seeing the glory of the king of kings on his throne, recognizes all his very, very finite self. And he speaks judgment on himself. He says, Woe is me. Why? Because I am I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's unworthy, he receives judgment, he is lost and he sees it all because he has seen the holiness of God, the King, the Lord of Hosts. Can I issue a bit of a warning here to us people of God? That when we seek to know more of God in His holiness, which is awesome, God will reveal more of us. And that will not be pretty. There is a continuum in my life that I have discovered, that maybe you've discovered, that I think Isaiah illustrates here. It goes something like this. The more that I see the holiness of God, the more I see my sin. And similarly, the more honest I am with my sin, you ever experienced that, right? The more I see the holiness of God. Our awareness, get this, our awareness of the holiness of God will reveal our awareness of our sin and its consequences. And, and, And get this, sometimes God reveals our sin and its consequences to make us more aware of the holiness of God backwards from Isaiah and Isaiah 6 this idea of the revelation of sin that points us to the holiness of God but it has the same results we see God in his glory and us in our sin. And this is where I want to lean into the uncertainty that we even face in these days of the coronavirus of quarantine of economic uncertainty. Is it possible Is it possible that the things that cause uncertainty in our lives, like the coronavirus in our day, is actually a picture of sin? A picture of sin. Either ours or just the brokenness of our world. John Piper, in his book, Coronavirus and Christ, asks the question of what is God doing through the coronavirus? And he gives some significant answers that are some of the inspiration for this sermon series, some of which you'll hear as we move forward. But one of the answers is that God is giving the world, this is what Piper says, God is giving the world in the coronavirus outbreak, as in all other calamities, a physical picture of the moral horror and spiritual ugliness of God belittling sin. What is God doing in the coronavirus? Piper says it's possible that he's using this like he has used other calamities as a physical picture of the moral horror and spiritual ugliness of God belittling sin. Piper is suggesting, what Piper is suggesting is exactly what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6, the connection of God's overwhelming holiness and the ugliness of our sin. I have a problem. I'm not usually shy to admit to you my problems. Because many of you have problems as well. But I have a problem. Maybe you have the same problem. I often fail to see the holiness of God. And therefore I fail to find certainty in my uncertainty. Because I am unwilling to admit the ugliness of my sin. I like to justify my sin. I like to excuse my sin. I like to explain away my sin. And when I do that, I fail to see the holiness of God, and I fail, therefore, to find certainty in my uncertainty. Again, Sproul made the observation that in the 18th century, the message of the preacher was, man is bad, and God is mad. Uh, You you might remember the 18th century preacher, Jonathan Edwards, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? Man is bad and God is mad. Sproul goes on to say, uh, in the 19th century that message changed a bit. It was, "Eh, man's not so bad and God's not so mad. It began to lessen. To the 20th century, when he said, listen, in, in liberal theology, right, so not in churches like Covenant Church, but the reality of, of a liberal mainstream, there was actually a, a thinking, a philosophy that... that that God's wrath was a defect in his character. And people began to rewrite the Old Testament because they saw all these angry God moments in his wrath over sin as being a defect in his character, a defect in the character of God. Even to listen, the 21st century in which we now live to the reality that we've become God and we get to tell God what is sin and what is not. And so, absent of his word, oftentimes in contradiction to his word, we begin in, in, in liberal minds to be, able to, begin to, to be able to define what sin is irregardless of what God thinks. You, you see what happens in society and culture? Well, before we're too critical of culture in the reality of liberal theology, think of your own life, how many times you justify your sin, you excuse your sin, you explain your sin, your sin away. You don't want to admit that you are bad and that God is indeed mad. Instead of saying, woe is me, right, where Isaiah was, we work really hard to just justify our truly ugly sin. And so, is it possible that God in His mercy Uses things like the coronavirus to just show us the brokenness of our world and our lives. To show us the ugliness of our sin. Listen, so that we might begin to see more clearly His holiness. And then finally, that we might see His holiness in our sin most clearly through the forgiveness of our sins. So in this text today, there's a picture of holiness that is beautiful. God, high and lifted up. There's a picture of sin. Woe is me. I'm I'm undone, says Isaiah. But then look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, to Isaiah in his despair, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said this, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Picture of holiness, picture of sin, and then this beautiful picture of grace. Uh, The picture is astounding, is it not? Isaiah, in all of his despair, is approached by the seraphim. And this messenger of God touches the self-confessed, unclean lips of Isaiah with a burning coal and announces that his sin has been forgiven, listen, atoned for, that his his sin has been paid for, that his sin is wiped out, and that any reason for guilt, some of you need to listen, you guilt-ridden folks, right, any reason for guilt has been taken away. Boy, I hope you can feel the weight of that moment. Because understand, up to this moment, the forgiveness of sins has required the obedience of the people in the offering of a sacrifice, right? God has instructed them, the way in which your sins are forgiven is by the giving of the sacrifice. I just finished Leviticus in my reading through the Bible, and it always astounds me to think about the sacrifices that were made for sin a bull was killed uh, blood sprinkled at the veil of the sanctuary blood poured at the at the um, uh, the base of the altar blood sprinkled uh, on the altar uh, and, and the, the fat of the gut and know this is a little gross but the it's the point the fat of the gut the Kidneys and the long lobe of the liver are removed and burnt on the altar of incense. And then the rest of the carcass and the rest of the ox is carried away and burnt outside the city gates. Lots of blood. Lots of rules. Lots of responsibility by the priests to do it right. A huge sacrifice of obedience. Right? That's, that's how sin would be forgiven. But get this. Maybe for the first time in the scriptures, Isaiah here in Isaiah 6, left in his sins, is actually approached by God. And at God's initiative, Isaiah is cleansed. God did not send the seraphim to tell Isaiah, hey, get up, go get a bull and make a proper sacrifice. No, the the seraphim came to tell Isaiah, after he touched the coal to his mouth, And his sins were forgiven. God sent the seraphim to cleanse Isaiah of his sins. Can I skip to the chase here quickly? In Isaiah 7, so just a number of words later, Isaiah will prophesy of one born of a virgin whose name shall be called, what, Emmanuel, God with us. And then just a couple pages over in Isaiah 9, he will prophesy of a child to be born whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 53, a number of chapters later, Isaiah will prophesy of one who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Listen, this is the mission of God, to send his son, Jesus. And why? To wipe out our sins and to take any reason for guilt away. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is experiencing the gospel God coming to him. Emmanuel, God with us. Why? That he would take away the sins. Of the world. It is an invitation. To Isaiah. But through Isaiah to us. From a holy God. Listen. To allow your sins to be revealed. We don't have to hide them. We don't have to put them in a the corner of our house. We don't have to justify them. We don't have to excuse them. We can we can be honest about them. That our sins would be revealed. That, that it's okay, I've told you this covenant church many times, it's okay to say that we are messed up because, as a merciful God, God has provided a way for your sins to be forgiven. God has provided the sacrifice, God has provided that broken body, God has provided that shed blood, and He's done it through. Jesus. It is the proverbial coal to our lips. Picture of holiness that reveals a picture of sin that reveals a picture of grace. Listen, way too often we approach this table, the table of the Lord's Supper, kind of expecting mercy when we sin, we, we lean into that mercy of God before, we often feel the weight of our sin. If you knew this passage, and many of you did, maybe you've heard it before, right? You, you knew about the coal. It's the good part. It's the part we want to get to. And, and it is good. It's, it's glorious. But can I suggest that the expected mercy, when, when we just kind of skip over the sin to the expected mercy, can become a hindrance. What is more beautiful is when we first lean into our sin. Recognize the horror of it. See the ugliness of it. That like Isaiah, we would lean into the holiness of God to see the woe of our sin. And in the weight of our woe, we might experience, listen, the beauty of His grace. death of Uzziah brought about all kinds of questions. All kinds of uncertainty. As does things like the coronavirus, the quarantine, and the economic questions that we are now in. But has God done these things that we, like Isaiah, might behold the certainty of God's holiness, the depth of our sin, and the beauty of His grace, Uh, I say as we come to this table, yes, indeed, He has. Who is God? He is holy. (laughs) And He is full of mercy. These are certainties in our uncertainty. People of God, may we feel safe in Him. May we feel secure in Him. May we feel certain in Him. Even though we live in the uncertainties of our time and the uncertainties of our sin. Let's pray together. Father God, in Your way, in Your time, for the sake of Your people, scattered this morning, but in Your presence, <laughs> would You in some way give us insight, give us a picture ...of the reality of a glimpse of your holiness. Maybe it's because today we recognize our sin. Certainly today, if we would behold even a glimpse of your holiness, we would realize our sin. That it might rise to the surface. That today we would confess our sins our arrogance, our pride, that we would confess our selfishness, our greed, that we would confess our anxieties, our worries, that we would confess our stubbornness, our lusts. God, that we would allow those things to come that even today we would say, woes me. And feel the weight of our sin, that we might see the beauty of this table. The beauty of the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, that takes away our sin. And takes away any reason or even guilt. I may be. Would you, in these moments, God, take what is normal bread and grape juice? Would you consecrate it? Would you use it today in our lives to reveal who you are, to reveal who we are, that you would reveal today Jesus as the sacrifice for our sins? May that be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a moment maybe to uh, gather together uh, the bread, the crackers in your home, uh, the juice, maybe the wine in your home as we indeed prepare for the Lord's table. I would encourage you to do that now. May we come and hear the words of Christ, even as the Apostle Paul shares with us in the book of 1 Corinthians, that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. and He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. The sacrifice, torn apart, broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which has been shed for you. That blood that was sprinkled on the altar of incense, the the blood that was poured out at the base of the altar, the blood that in the exodus was placed on the doorframe that death would pass over. Christ's blood is the fulfillment of those things. His blood shed for the forgiveness of, of our sins. That as often as we take the bread and eat it, as often as we take the cup and drink it, we remember that which Christ has done, what Christ is doing, even today, and what Christ has yet to do in providing for us an eternal new heaven and new earth. I would say that if you are a believer in Christ one who trusts in this sacrifice to cleanse you from sin, then this table, these elements are for you. And I would just give us a moment again to confess our sins, to quietly still our hearts before we take these elements. Let's pray together. Lord, we we exhale our sin. As we breathe out, we even imagine the reality of our sin being expressed before you. And then we inhale your grace and your mercy that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. May that be even at this table, even in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God the body of Christ, broken for you. Take this. Remember him. People of God, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take, a drink. Remember Him. Father, we run to you in this table. We run to you. We are grateful that today you Receive us, that you cleanse us, that you wash us new. May in that we now worship you, uh, declaring your holiness, maybe in a way seeing your holiness as if we've never seen it before. Oh, for your glory may it be, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you join us? And singing those great words from the book of Revelation that declare the worthiness of God, the holiness of God, that indeed we would see him today and see ourselves touched by that coal, cleansed, and give praise to him.